This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ then sin is not the issue in terms of your eternal destiny. You have a secure salvation, and you can never do anything to compromise that, because salvation is a free gift. However, when we sin after salvation, it does affect our ongoing relationship or fellowship with God. It breaks fellowship. Scripture teaches that it grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. But the solution to that is simply using the principle of 1 John 1, 9 to confess or admit our sins to God. We're told that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a matter of feeling guilty, feeling remorse, impressing God with uh, the fact that you'll never do it again because in his omniscience, he knows that you'll do it about 15,000 more times. It is simply a matter of, as it were, reminding God and ourselves, that all of our sins have been paid for by Christ on the cross, that forgiveness, eternal forgiveness, has been uh, permanently secured at the cross, and therefore we can have a restoration of temporal fellowship and forgiveness and restoration of our ongoing spiritual life. Since we learn the Word of God and it is stored in our soul through the ongoing teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, it is important to be in fellowship when we study and learn the Word of God. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together this Resurrection Sunday morning in order to worship you because we know that our salvation has been secured by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. During that time between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when clouds covered the earth and darkness covered the earth, It is during that time that the sins of mankind were poured out upon him. It is during that time that he judicially paid the penalty for that sin so that we could have eternal life. That there is nothing that we can do to add to that. There is nothing that we can do to to gain merit before you. It was all done by Jesus Christ. That all we have to do is accept that as a free gift. 
Father, we pray that as we come together this morning to worship you, that we would recognize that the most important thing that we can do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is to study your word, that you have commanded us not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renovation of our thinking, the renewing of our mind, that we may learn to think as you think, that we may learn to understand the things of life as you have created them, and that we may learn more about you, that we can walk closely with you, and that we can glorify you in our lives. Father, we thank you for this country in which we live, for the freedoms we have. We thank you for our president, the leadership that he has demonstrated, the leadership that he has shown. Father, we thank you for the victory that we have had in this war in Iraq. We pray that you would continue to watch over this nation, to protect it and preserve it, because we know that ultimately, no matter how strong our military might be, no matter how great our security might be, that ultimately our security rests in your hands. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that you would challenge us with the truths that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second John. Second John, we are in verse 10. Second John, verse 10. Now these three epistles that we are studying, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, focus on the importance of the spiritual life and fellowship with God. At the very core of John's teaching on the spiritual life in these epistles is the concept of love. Now love is one of those terms and one of those uh, teachings in the scripture that is usually not understand by the vast usually not understood by the vast majority of people and the vast majority of Christians usually they want to interpret love in some sort of superficial sentimental way that has little or nothing to do with the biblical concept of love in the Bible, love is not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not some sort of warm, fuzzy sentiment. Love in the Bible is related to an understanding of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The barometer for our love for God is not how we feel. The barometer for, of our love for God is based on our understanding of his word and our obedience to his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is love for God that is developed through a study of his word. You can't love whom you do not know. Only as we come to know God, only as we come to know uh, him through the word, do we come to appreciate all that he has done for us. As we grow to appreciate all that he has done for us, then our love for him increases. As our love for him increases, it in turn motivates us to live for him, to learn more about him, and to apply his word. As we are motivated by our love for him, in turn we learn that we are to love one another. Jesus said that we are to love others as he loved us. We are to love one another. This is the command that John reiterates in verse 6. Actually, in verses 5 and 6, I wrote a new commandment to you. But that, that not, <clears throat> but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love that we walk according to His commandments. 
That means that to walk according to his commandments, we have to know his commandments. To know his commandments, we have to make it a priority to know and understand his word. Now, as we have broken this down, we have seen that personal love for God, along with impersonal love for all mankind, and this is, we call it impersonal love because it does not entail a, or it does not necessarily entail a personal relationship with other believers. We can love others as Christ loved them without knowing them, without spending time with them, without having a necessary relationship with them. We can treat them on the basis of the character of God's uh, integrity without necessarily having a personal relationship with that individual. Sometimes it's very difficult to have a personal relationship with some people simply because they are immature, they're arrogant, they're obnoxious, whatever it may be. They're not attractive. They're not someone who it's easy to get along with. Nevertheless, we can still uh, treat them with honor, with respect, with courtesy, because we understand that the model for our love is not some sort of emotion based on you know, the attractiveness of the object, but it's based on character. It's based on the fact that, that we understand the, the example of Jesus Christ dying on the cross as our substitute, that he died for us even though we were obnoxious to him, even though we were sinners, even though we were in rebellion against God, even though we are born in a state of sin at enmity with God. Scripture says we are to love one another as Christ loved us. So we have looked at this whole concept of love in terms of the advanced or the mature spiritual skills. Now, when we look at the spiritual life, we have described it in terms of these two spheres that we have in the diagram on the overhead. On the left, we have our eternal realities, that at the instant of salvation... We are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. This is a a non-experiential reality where we are identified with the work of Christ on the cross, that we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are placed in Christ. We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And this is a permanent reality that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But on the right side, we have a sphere that describes our temporal realities, that we are, from the instant of salvation, filled by the Holy Spirit. We begin to walk by the Spirit. We are abiding in Christ, but we still have a sin nature. And it's not long after we're first saved before we commit a sin and we are out of fellowship, walking in darkness, walking by the flesh, and we have to recover. Recovery is First John 1, 9, when we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and we're back in fellowship. But it's not simply a matter of confessing our sins and getting back in fellowship and then sinning and getting out of fellowship and then confessing your sins and being back in fellowship. The principle is that we are to be filled by the Spirit, we are, but we are to walk by the Spirit. The command that John emphasizes that relates to this is the idea of abiding in Christ. So we looked at our spiritual skills, and we outlined them in a circle like this, because these are the skills that allow us to stay in that circle. This is really the parameters of that right circle. We stay inside the boundaries by confessing our sins, or we get back inside the boundary by confessing our sins. 
Then we're filled with the Spirit and we walk by the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians uh, 5.16. We continue to stay in fellowship by executing the faith rest drill. We learn God's promises and rely upon them when we are tempted to worry. We recognize that Scripture says that we are to cast all our cares upon Him because He cares for us. We have the promise in Philippians 4, uh, 5, and 6 that we are to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our requests known unto God. So we apply these these principles of great, of, uh, of trusting in His promises. We mix our faith with the promises of God. We rely upon the principles in God's word, and we continue to stay in fellowship to abide in Christ. We continue to grow by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the fourth and fifth spiritual skills or problem-solving devices. We grow by grace. We understand that our life functions on the principle of grace and not on the principle of works, that our relationship with God is based not on who and what we are, but who and what he is. We do not try to impress God. We cannot impress him. We do not try to bargain with God for his favor because grace is undeserved merit or or undeserved favor. We also grow by knowledge. That means we have to learn to think as God thinks. We have to learn what he has revealed to us in his word. Christianity is not about uh, being impressed by pageantry and ritual. Christianity is not uh, about having warm, fuzzy feelings about God. Christianity is about the truth. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the personification of absolute truth with a capital T. Jesus Christ's thinking is encapsulated for us in the Word of God, where Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth, capital T truth, thy Word is truth. So we grow by means of the knowledge of His Word. So we have grace orientation where we orient our thinking to God, to God's grace. And we have doctrinal orientation where we orient our thinking to the Word of God. Once we learn basics of doctrine, the basics of grace, and basic principles of, uh, or some basic promises, and we are applying these consistently, then we grow to spiritual adolescence where we learn to live our spiritual life not on the basis of day-to-day decisions, but on the basis of how those decisions affect our eternal destiny, not in terms of salvation, but in terms of our position in the future kingdom and in heaven. So we have our personal sense of our eternal destiny. And we learn that every decision we make will affect uh, who and what we are in eternity. As we begin to live in light of eternity, we begin to learn more and more about who God is, and our personal love for God increases. And as our personal love for God increases and we develop an understanding of his character, then on the basis of his character and who he is and what he did for us on the cross, we learn that we can love other people not on the basis of who they are or what they have done or haven't done, but on the basis of who God is. So personal love for God provides the integrity that is the foundation for real, genuine love toward other people. This, in turn, is focused on the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 2.2, 2, that 
he is the author and perfecter of our faith, and we are to fix our eyes, that is, to fix our thinking on him. That's occupation with Christ. The result of this is that we share the happiness of Christ. So all of these are spiritual skills. When we practice them, we are abiding in Christ. When we face a test, some sort of situation, temptation, and we disobey the word and we sin, then we are outside of this circle and we are in carnality and darkness, and then we just confess our sins, and we're back in fellowship. And we, but we are the emphasis in Scripture is to abide in Christ, to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, to walk in the light. So the issue is our personal volition, whether or not we are going to stay in fellowship, whether or not we're going to apply the Word, or whether we're going to live on the basis of the sin nature and our own desires and lust patterns. Now, we have also pictured this in terms of the soul fortress, that when we are utilizing these spiritual skills, we are inside this fortress where God protects us, and no matter how difficult life may be, no matter what the uh, uh, circumstances may be surrounding us, no matter how uh, how much catastrophe we go through in life, as long as we are using these spiritual skills, we can have stability, tranquility, contentment, and we are protected. But once we leave the soul fortress, we are out of fellowship, then we are in a position where we are uh, spiritually endangered. Now, all of these spiritual skills, with the exception of confession of sin, were pioneered for us, with the exception of confession of sin and occupation with Christ. All of these spiritual skills, eight of them, were pioneered for us by Jesus Christ in his humanity. That is why Paul emphasizes the person of Jesus Christ in these epistles. There are two emphases in all three of these epistles. One is on loving one another as Christ has loved us. And two is understanding him in his undiminished deity and his true humanity. Now, what is the connection between those two doctrines? If Jesus Christ is not truly human, if he is not as human as you and I are without a sin nature, but if he is not as human as you and I are, then the love that he demonstrated would not be possible for us to apply. See, we could easily say, oh, that was easy for Jesus to love sinners as he did because he's God. But see, he doesn't love them out of his deity. He loves them from his humanity. And in his humanity, he is able to love those who reject him. He is able to hang on the cross and there suffer not only the the unimaginable horrors of bearing the penalty for our sins, but the unimaginable pain, the physical pain and suffering of the crucifixion and the rejection by his own people. Jesus Christ is rejected by the very people he came to save, by people he knew. There were people involved in those crowds that he administered to. There were people who had professed faith in him. There were people in the crowds in Jerusalem who were who were rejecting him, and yet as he hangs on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He is able to have that kind of love and forgiveness 
in his humanity, which tells us that no matter how harshly we're treated, no matter how badly we're rejected, no matter what the situation might be, we too can exercise that same kind of love towards other human beings because Jesus Christ did it in his humanity. This is why the humanity of Jesus Christ is such a crucial issue in these epistles. It has been attacked by a system of thinking that developed from Greek Greek uh, philosophy. Actually, it was a mix of a number of things. On the one hand, you had Persian dualism, which is the idea that good and evil are both eternal. That they are eternal principles, always at work. Uh, you you get that today in the yin yang symbol in Eastern mysticism. It's the same kind of dualism that uh, good and evil are both eternal principles. There is no ultimate good or ultimate uh, deity. So there was a mix of Persian dualism, Greek philosophy, a mix of uh, Stoicism a mix of uh, Aristotelianism and Platonism, all of these kind of things mixed together, Epicureanism, Stoicism, Aristotelianism, and Platonism, all mixed together. Plus you had uh, a blend with Jewish morality from the Mosaic Law, plus any number of other things, so that uh, this whole system which came to its... Uh, full flowering in the second century was known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism emphasized, it was, a, it was a, an intellectualism that emphasized a special form of knowledge, a special kind of knowledge from the Greek word gnosis that we have this this uh, special insight, this special knowledge into the workings of the universe, and if you just um, buy into our uh, initiation and our secret rituals, then you too can know the secrets of life. But because it was such a hodgepodge of different ideas, different religions, and different systems, it was really it really promised something for everybody. And you could come into it and you could emphasize the Persian dualism and aspect of it and, and uh, play down the, the elements from Jewish morality and you could end up in a kind of licentiousness or you could uh, kind of uh, downplay the dualism aspect or the Greek philosophy and just emphasize the uh, Jewish morality phase and end up with a real legalistic type of approach to life. Or you could get real involved in the uh, different elements of Greek philosophy and get involved in all kinds of, of uh, intellectualism that that might stimulate your thinking but, of course, would not have any real spiritual value, but think that because you were intellectually stimulated and you had uh, control of all kinds of esoteric ideas that somehow, and because you could impress people that somehow that impressed God. So you had all these different ideas blended together in Gnosticism. Well, one element in Gnosticism was something called Docetism, which we have studied. And in Docetism... Docetism, from the Greek verb dokeo, meaning to appear, rejected the genuine humanity of Jesus Christ. In Docetism, the idea was that that ultimate reality was up here in the realm of the ideal. In, um, in Platon, Platonistic thought, 
you would have, let's say, for example, you have uh, the idea. You, you look down here, and you have a nice, uh, you have a nice table. Uh, maybe it's a nice French antique table, and um, uh, you speak about a table. Now, somebody over here doesn't like French antiques, especially since the French haven't been uh, doing so well in terms of their position as allies lately, so they would rather think of perhaps uh, some sort of uh, oriental idea of a table. But you have different ideas uh, of tables. If I mention a table to one person on this side of the congregation, they're going to have one image of a table. If I mention table to somebody over here on the other side of the congregation, they have another idea of a table. But in, in Greek philosophy, they understood that for people to even communicate about tables, there must be some sort of universal uh, table, some sort of universal idea of a table. So somewhere up in the realm of the ideal, you must have the existence of the ideal or perfect table. But as soon as that ideal or perfect table became uh, instantiated in real existence, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. The wood was scratched or, or perhaps one leg was shorter than another. Whatever it would be, no table existing in reality could be perfect. Only the ideal could be perfect. Well, when they transferred that concept into Christianity, they thought, well, God is in the realm of, ide- of the ideal. If God were to become man and enter the realm of reality, then he would necessarily be flawed. And so they rejected the idea that God could become man. They rejected the idea that Jesus Christ could be truly, truly human or could be both God and mankind at the same time. And so they rejected the idea that he was a true man. He just appeared to be a man. That's where they get the word dokeo, just the appearance. He just appeared to be a man, and he didn't actually go to the cross, and he didn't actually die because, of course, God couldn't do that. See, what they've done is they've taken some external system, some external value, and they've come in and they've imposed that as an interpretive principle on Christianity. What did we call this? We studied the first hour. It's syncretism. It is where you're trying to blend the human viewpoint thinking of the culture with the Bible and make these things come together rather than completely doing away with your preconceived ideas, whatever preconceived notions uh, came along from, from, cult- from your background or your culture. This is why John is making such an important emphasis on having a correct understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. If you don't have the right person, you can't have the right work. Because a Jesus who isn't fully human can't die on the cross as a substitute for the human race. A Jesus who isn't fully God cannot be a mediator between God and man. So Jesus has to be both truly God, genuine undiminished deity, and true humanity united in one person, and that is called the hypostatic union, the union of two hypostases, it's a Greek word, two persons in one, or two natures in one. He is fully God and fully man united in one person. So John says in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess, which means to acknowledge or admit, that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. They deny his humanity. 
He says this is a deceiver and an antichrist. So this is even true as we've studied about some genuinely born again believers. They are truly saved, but then as time goes on, they become impressed with these intellectual systems, and rather than trusting in the scriptures, they go wandering down some intellectual sidetrack, and they basically become an antichrist. They're still saved, but they are now espousing doctrines of demons. So John warns, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for. Now you don't work for salvation. Salvation is a free gift. You don't work for a gift. A gift is something that is unearned and undeserved. What you work for are the rewards that are earned as the believer advances to spiritual maturity. Those We studied the doctrine of crowns and the doctrine of rewards when we went through that passage. These rewards will be distributed to believers at the judgment seat of Christ, and they will determine our roles and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom and then in eternity. So John warns, the warning would be meaningless unless it were possible for believers to completely reverse everything they believed at one point. This is a problem with so-called lordship salvation. Lordship salvation teaches the idea that a believer can't do certain things. If you're truly saved, and remember, you always need to watch out for people who use adverbs with salvation. Anytime somebody says, well, if if that person's truly saved, if they are genuinely saved, if they had a real faith, then they would be saved. The Bible never uses adverbs, any kind of adverb to qualify belief or faith. It always talks about faith alone. It always talks about faith in Christ. If you believe in Christ, then you're saved. There's no such thing as a pseudo Faith in Christ, or somebody who simply professes faith in Christ. I mean, you either believe in Christ or you don't. The concept of professing faith is really sort of a a red herring that is not an actual fact. There's no such thing in the Scripture. There are people who may claim to be Christians, but they're not a Christian. They're trusting in works. They're trusting in they're trusting in something, uh, they're trusting in baptism, they're trusting in good works, they're trusting in ritual. They may profess to be a Christian, but if you say you believe in Christ, and you do believe in Christ, then you are a, you are saved. Now, John says that, that you can, obviously, it's possible for a believer to lose the things that are worked for. He's not talking about losing salvation. That's not worked for. He's talking about losing that which is worked for, that we may receive a full reward. And then in verse 9 he says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, that is, whoever violates basic understanding of the person and work of Christ, does not have God. And we studied this phraseology, having God or having Christ, as it's used in... um, First uh, John, and there it always relates to fellowship, as does the word abide. For example, we can look at First John chapter two, uh, verse verse twenty-two. 
where John says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Same principle that we have in Second John. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And in this terminology, it's talking about having an ongoing relationship or fellowship with God. So fellowship with God is broken not only by sin, but by having a false understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. Because if you do not have a truly human Jesus, John is saying, then you don't have a foundation for understanding the spiritual life in the church age. Because the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age is in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who lived on this earth as a true human being, in the power of God the Holy Spirit. See, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, it was a different basis for the spiritual life. It was just a basis of morality on the Mosaic Law. But in the church age, it's based. the spiritual life is based on relationship with the Holy Spirit. So John concludes the second part of verse 9, He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. He's talking about staying in fellowship, staying inside uh, inside that circle, continuing to abide in Him, continuing to walk in the light, and continuing to have that ongoing fellowship with Christ, staying inside the soul fortress. Then we come to verse 10. Verse 10 emphasizes the seriousness of this whole doctrinal orthodoxy. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now this sentence in verse 10 begins with a conditional clause, if. This sets up a condition. In English, we have only one way to express a condition, but in Greek, there are four ways to express a condition. The first way is if, assuming it is true. See, there are two parts to any condition. Usually have an if clause. If you do this, then this will happen. And the then clause, the if clause is called a protesis, P-R-O meaning first, and the then clause is called the apodosis. And, and in Greek, you have, different, um, uh, you have different ways of expressing different kinds of conditions. For example, a first-class condition, the, uh, the uh, apodosis is assumed to be true. And therefore, the conclusion would then be true. It's not always the case if and it's true, because sometimes it's simply assumed to be true for the sake of argument. A second-class condition assumes the unreality or untruth of the condition, and then the conclusion follows from that. The Greek third-class condition is what we normally think of as a condition, and that is a condition that is uncertain. It could be this way, or it could be another way. And then a fourth-class condition, which is relatively rare in the New Testament, indicates what might be true in some unusual uh, circumstances. And what we have here is a first-class condition assuming the truth of the protesis. If, and we assume that it will happen, that someone will come to you and will not bring this doctrine. 
This is the, the emphasis in the Protestants. There is an expectation that this will take place at some point in your life, that someone will come who will be professing a, or teaching some false system of thinking, some false doctrine related to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John says, if anyone comes to you, and he uses the present middle indicative of the verb erkamai, and it emphasizes the fact that this could happen at any point in time in your life. If someone comes to you, or if anyone comes to you, and does not bring, does not bring this doctrine. And there we have the word, the verb is pharaoh, the Greek verb pharaoh, in a present active indicative, meaning to bury, to carry, or to bring forth this doctrine. So if they don't carry this doctrine, that is, if this is not a doctrine that they're teaching, then they're told, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. So Paul's basic, I mean, John's basic statement here at the beginning is, if, and this will happen at some point in your life, if anyone comes into your life, and it's a futuristic present tense there, that at the time of their coming, that they do not bring this particular teaching. Now, the doctrine that he is emphasizing is a doctrine related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we have seen this, in a, that the doctrine of Christ relates to six different areas. First of all, his pre-incarnate deity, that is, the eternality of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not originate his existence with the virgin conception and birth. Jesus Christ in his deity has existed throughout all of eternity. He is fully God, and therefore he shares in all of the attributes of God, and he has eternal life. There was never a time when Jesus Christ did not exist as the second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal Son of God. This is the first area of Christology. The second area of Christology that is frequently attacked is the virgin conception and birth. That Jesus was born, was that Mary conceived while she was a virgin and gave birth to Jesus while a virgin, and therefore he did not inherit a sin nature from a human father. The third area of Christology that is often attacked is the impeccability of Christ, that is, that he was sinless. This is also important because impeccability relates to his qualification to go to the cross. The scriptures teach, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, he shares in all of the attributes of God, including perfect righteousness. Jesus Christ never sinned during the entire time of the Incarnation. He was without sin and therefore qualified to go to the cross and pay the penalty for every single sin committed in human history. When he went to the cross, he died as our substitute. This is the fourth area at stake in Christology, the substitutionary spiritual death of Christ on the cross. We covered this to some degree in the first hour, that the penalty for sin is not physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God. Physical death is one of the consequences of spiritual death. 
Spiritual death occurred for Christ on the cross during those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when darkness covered the face of the earth, and it was during that time that God the Father judicially imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross, that is, he credited to Jesus' account every single sin you will ever commit. Now, some people think, well, I'm not really a sinner. The very fact is that that is a sign of sin itself, for that is arrogance. Uh, there are all kinds of sin. There's mental attitude sins, such as pride, envy, jealousy, bitterness, hatred, uh, vengeance. All of these are mental attitude sins, or sins of the tongue. Sins of the tongue, such as gossip and slander, maligning. Plus, there are overt sins, such as murder, adultery, immorality. Every single sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. In many churches, you'll find preachers who spend all their time emphasizing sin, at least in You'll find that in some churches. Other churches, they never talk about it, and they never really talk about uh, the fact that Christ paid the penalty for sin. But sin is not the issue for uh, at salvation anymore because Jesus Christ paid the penalty. The issue is not to make people feel guilty, to feel bad about all the sins they committed. The issue is to recognize that you're a sinner, that as a sinner you can never have fellowship with God, you can never impress God, you can never do anything to gain God's approval, that as a sinner you are in need of eternal salvation. Jesus Christ went to the cross. On the cross, he paid the penalty for every single sin. So the issue is no longer sin. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and if you accept that as a free gift, and you believe that Jesus Christ's death on the cross, and that death alone is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins, and you are trusting in him alone for your salvation, then you have eternal life. It's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of impressing God with how good you're going to be. It's not a matter of impressing God with how sorry you are for what you did in your life. It's a matter of accepting the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. So the fourth area of assault is usually the substitutionary spiritual death of Christ. The fifth area is the resurrection of Christ. The fifth area is the resurrection of Christ, that he rose physically and bodily from the grave after three days and three nights in the tomb. And then the sixth and final area of assault on Christo- in the area of Christology is in his literal future second coming to the earth when he will establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. So John says, if anyone comes to you, and they will at some point in the future... And they do not bring with them this teaching, this accurate teaching related to the doctrine of Christ, do not receive them. John is warning them of the infiltration of Gnosticism into the congregation, that there would be an infiltration of Gnosticism or some other false system of teaching into the church. Paul did the same thing for Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20. There Paul warned, O Timothy, Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There's the Greek word gnosis, that which is falsely called knowledge, the intellectual systems of the day. Verse 21, Paul went on to say, By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. 
In the ancient world, the problem was this dualistic Gnosticism and Docetism that denied the genuine humanity of Jesus Christ. This appealed to the intellectual of that day who had no problem believing that there was some sort of deity out there, but had a problem thinking that that deity could become man. Today we live in an era of a different kind of Gnosticism, a Gnosticism that rejects the existence of God, a Gnosticism that believes that everything around just happened by chance, everything around just is a product of given enough time and, and uh, enough uh, uh, chance that anything can happen, and so everything is the product of pure material uh, uh, material uh, causes, and that there is no real difference, therefore, between a human being and a rock. I mean, actually, if you believe that that uh, in in any form of Darwinistic evolution, not only as we've been seeing on uh, our study on Wednesday night that it is not intellectually defensible, although there are many intellectuals who try to defend it, but that there is no real scientific evidence to validate it. Uh, if you missed the videotape this last uh, Wednesday night by a uh, law professor from the University of California at Berkeley, where he demonstrates all of the logical fallacies. As a lawyer, this man, uh, uh, Philip Johnson, is trained to think logically, trained to think in terms of evidence, and his conclusion is that on the principles of evidence, on the legal principles of evidence, and on the principles of logic, that uh, Darwinism just doesn't work. It has more holes than Swiss cheese. So today we live in an era where people want to reject the existence of God, want to reject that that Christ is deity, so they want to emphasize Jesus is just a man, and therefore he is fallible. But whether you're dealing with an ancient problem that rejects the humanity of Christ or a modern problem that rejects the deity of Christ, both of them challenge what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There is still today the the problem of the infiltration of false doctrine into the local church. Now that can happen a number of different ways. There are always, there's always the more overt approach where some individual or some cult group targets a local congregation. For example, you have those who are charismatics, those who believe that speaking in tongues and healing and the sign gifts are still in effect today and that somehow there is a level of super spirituality that they define as the filling of the Spirit. They misdefine it that way, but that is their approach. And so you always run into individuals who will uh, go to some congregation hoping to enlighten everybody in the congregation to the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, this happened uh, was more frequently back in the 60s and 70s, but it still happens today. Then you have another approach from cults. And we had an example of this uh, few months ago when there was an individual from a local homegrown cult who came to tell us that that uh, one Sunday morning that the that uh, the Messiah had returned and that uh, he was born up here in northeastern Connecticut and that his name was the Lord uh, Julius Christ and of course he stood up to announce that and I knew who he was and what he was going to do so I cut him off and we <coughs> had him leave before he could ever get his message out. Uh, 
But you also have a problem today with more militant groups, such as militant feminists and militant sodomites, who attempt to infiltrate local churches in order to promote their views and in order to wreak havoc on fundamentalist evangelical churches. They want to promote their views on getting women in the pulpit, getting women in ministry, and sodomites want to get into membership to try to get uh, homosexuals and gays into a local church in order to create problems. This is one reason why churches need to make certain that they have their positions on these issues clearly stated in their doctrinal statements and membership materials. If they are so clearly stated, then they have a basis for excluding this this kind of thing from ever creating a problem or division in a local congregation. In previous years, this was not as important or necessary as it is today because you do truly have people who try to target churches, come in secretly. They hold to various kinds of uh, ideas because they just want to become a member of the church and then they want to cause trouble. But uh, those are the more overt approaches. Then there are more subtle approaches for getting false doctrine into a local church. One happens when you let people teach who aren't properly oriented to the local church. This is one reason why you have to come to this church for at least two years, in my opinion, before you're going to be allowed to to teach in uh, Sunday school or something of that nature, unless, of course, there are uh, mitigating circumstances. You know, if there are people who have come to this church from other doctrinal churches or that I have known for, for many years, and so that's not an issue. The point is that you want to make sure that people have been examined and understand uh, the emphasis. Like we had a woman who visited not too long ago, and when I was uh, chatting with her during coffee, she asked me if if uh, I had, uh, or she basically informed me that she felt like the Lord was leading her to have a teaching ministry to women. And I just politely said, well, that's fine, that's nice. And she said, do you believe that the Holy Spirit still speaks to people apart from Scripture? And I said, no, I do not. We do not believe that. We believe that the canon was closed at the end of the first century and that the Holy Spirit only speaks to people today through Scripture and through His Word. And she wanted to argue with me a little bit about that. But she was convinced that God was leading her to have some sort of special ministry to women. And this was one reason she was leaving her previous church is because the pastor there apparently wouldn't let her do whatever she thought she could do. So this was a typical example of some rebellious woman who doesn't understand authority and just wants to go do her own thing based on her own um uh, inclinations. And this is always a problem today is you have people, not just women, but you have men too, who don't want to submit to the authority of the pastor, the authority of the word, and they just want to uh, have a little power play in some local congregation. And that's one way that uh, false doctrine can get into the church. Another problem is when you get a, a guest speaker that comes in and they introduce some false concepts. And we had a little bit of that this last week when we had our conference on Roman Catholicism. 
and it was very clear to the deacons at least. It was a good test for everybody. I had informed the congregation ahead of time that there might be the odd problem here or there just to step over it because he was a man who had a tremendous amount of uh, solid information on evangelism to Roman Catholics and that we could learn a lot from him. But uh, if he had... Uh, we could learn a lot from him about Roman Catholicism and about evangelism, but there might be a doctrinal notion here or there that was a problem. I did not realize that he was uh, into lordship salvation as heavily as he was. And as a matter of fact, when I talked about some of it with uh, Tommy Ice afterwards, uh, Tommy did not was not aware that he was that lordship either. And so those who had recommended him to me had not uh, ever heard him make the kind of statements that he made here. Just an example of how what a wonderful high-tech world we live in. On uh, last Saturday morning, we were flying to um, uh, Cabo San Lucas for a week's vacation, and Bryce called me. I was we were in between planes, and I think we were in Chicago. He called me in Chicago, and he said, "Well, the guy's a little lordship." I said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, you want to listen to the tape? I said, sure. He said, how can I get it to you? I said, well, I've got a two-hour layover in Dallas, so why don't you email Tommy and send him a link to the, to the website where you, you can post the, the message out on some back page on our, on our website. You can email the link to Tommy. Tommy will download it on his computer. He's going to meet me for lunch or for dinner, so he'll download it, save it on a CD, and hand it off to me at the airport in Dallas, and by the time I get to Cabo, I will have listened to it. So how's that for high tech? But he he clearly demonstrated the fact that he was lordship. If you didn't pick up on that, then you need to make sure you get your keister in here to Bible class without missing for a while. I mean, it was obvious this guy is teaching that, that, first of all, he said that First John uh, was a book describing Christians versus non-Christians. And after two years of being in the Johannian epistles, you ought to know that First John is not about Christians versus non-Christians. It is about carnal Christians versus spiritual Christians. He handled James 2 in a clearly lordship way. And he did some other things that should have made it very clear, and he also gave frequently used words like uh, genuine faith or truly saved. And as soon as you hear anybody use an adverb like that or modify faith with an adjective, then you need to have your, your uh, uh, red flags going off knowing that something's a problem. So that was a good test to see if you spotted those things. And if you didn't spot those things, then you've been sleeping through class and you haven't been here enough, so you need to uh, wake up and and, uh, get to class a little more often because you're a prone candidate to be seduced by false doctrine. So you have problems like that, and of course I have to come back and uh, correct a few things to make sure that those of you who haven't been around long enough uh, realize that there were some problems. See, the, the thing you run into in life, you'll see this in politics, you'll see this in all kinds of areas in life, is that there are a number of people that can come in and give you an accurate analysis of what's wrong with the system. And in some ways you can learn a lot from those people. But their analysis of, for correction is flawed. Just because somebody can correctly analyze the problems with something doesn't mean they know the solution. Always be careful of that. 
There are many times in life when people are, are upset about something. They're, they've got uh, some problem with the way churches are operate, or they've got a problem with some politicians. And as soon as they hear somebody come along that has a tremendous analysis of, of, of that church or that problem, and they say, yeah, they really understand the problem. That's right. They may understand the problem. That doesn't mean they have a clue as to what the solution is. So just because somebody can analyze a problem doesn't mean they know the solution. But I apologize. I didn't realize he was he was uh, lordship. And uh, as much as he was, I thought that uh, I realized most people today have a little bit of a problem here or there. But he has a tremendous problem. And the problem with lordship is it's the same problem that Catholicism has. You can't really know you're saved until you die, because the evidence of a real or genuine faith is the works in your life. And if you commit certain works or certain sins, then you weren't really saved. And so how do you know if you're really saved? Well, you don't until you die, because you might commit murder. You might commit adultery. You might commit some sin ten years from now, and that would prove that you weren't really saved. So that, once again, is a backdoor way of introducing works to salvation. Salvation is not dependent on anything we do. Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full. And after he paid the penalty, he went in the grave for three days, and then he was resurrected from the grave. So we have the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've studied almost every other facet of Christology, and we have spent little time on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was crucified probably on Wednesday afternoon in order to get three days and three nights in the tomb. So that some time, not the traditional Friday. Now, if you've never heard that, uh, that may surprise you, but I don't have time to go into all the intricate details of chronology on the last week uh, of, of Christ. But it's more, more than likely that it was on uh, Wednesday. You just can't get three days and three nights between Friday afternoon and, and uh, Sunday morning, no matter how hard you try. So sometime between 6 p.m. on Saturday, which is when 6 p.m. is when the day ends, between 6 p.m. on Saturday and before dawn on Sunday, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We're told that the two Marys arrived at the tomb by dawn, and Jesus was already gone. That's according to Matthew 28, 1-6, Luke 24, 1-8, and John 20, verse 1. An angel had rolled the stone away to show them that Jesus had walked through the rock wall of the tomb sometime after 6 p.m. on Saturday, just as he uh, would later walk through the door where the apostles were staying in his resurrection body. So the emphasis in the scripture is that the resurrection of Christ is one of the most important doctrines of the New Testament. Today that is under attack by a group called the Jesus Seminar. These are so-called scholars. The, one of their leaders is a man named Marcus Borg. Every now and then you read something in the paper about this group. They meet annually, and they, they, they're the guys who are color-coding the scriptures. You know, the, the things that Jesus never did, they color it one way, and then the things that that um, he might have done, they give it another color. The things that he could have done, they do it another color, and the things they probably did, 
they they color with another color and they end up with about five pages from the Gospels and they get rid of everything else. See, that's the typical approach of, of liberalism is, is Jesus challenges man the who and what he is, that you're a creature of God and you're accountable to God. And if you're not comfortable with the preaching of the Gospel, if you're not comfortable with Scripture, it's because you are in rebellion with God. So the best thing to do is to get out your razor blade and get rid of most of Scripture. Well, Here's a quote that indicates their approach. The truth of Easter does not depend on whether there really was an empty tomb. It is because Jesus is known as a living reality that we take Easter stories seriously, not the other way around. You see, what he means is it's the myth that's important. It's not whether it has any any foundation in reality. He says, and taking them seriously need not mean taking them literally. But that's not what the Bible teaches. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 17, the Apostle Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. The resurrection is foundational to the whole doctrine of salvation. If Jesus did not was not raised from the dead then our salvation has not been paid for. So let's look at the importance of the resurrection. First of all, in the resurrection, Jesus conquers death, physical death, which is the greatest consequence of sin. Genesis 3:14 and following outlines the various consequences of sin, and physical death is, is the last one mentioned. Second, the resurrection validates Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary payment for the sins of humanity. It is God's uh, seal of approval, his acceptance of Christ's payment for our sins. And then third, it was a sign to the Jews. In Matthew 12:39 and 40, Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea creature, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There have been various attempts given to try to explain away the resurrection. But a man by the name of Frank Morrison, who was an agnostic back in the 50s and 60s, sought to disprove the case for Christianity and the resurrection. But like so many who have gone before him, he ended up realizing that there was more proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for any other event in history. There's more proof for the resurrection of Christ than that Columbus uh, sailed across the ocean blue in 1492. There's more proof for the resurrection of Christ than George Washington being the first president of the United States. There is more proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than anything in ancient history, and that is anything that happened before the 5th century A.D. Frank Morrison joined many who had gone before him, such as Lew Wallace. Lew Wallace was a famous Civil War general who fought for the Federal Army in the North, and after the Civil War was appointed territorial governor of New Mexico after the Lincoln, Lincoln County Wars. You know, those of you who are John Wayne fans and watch Chisholm, that was the Lincoln County, ca- County Cattle Wars. He was also better known as the author of Ben-Hur. 
because Lou Wallace realized that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he wrote Ben-Hur as a novel about Christ. It's not about Ben-Hur. It is a novel about Jesus Christ. And he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another individual by the name of Josh McDowell, who is familiar to most of you, who speaks throughout this country, in fact, all over the world, also spent six years trying to disprove Christianity. He was... uh, He did his undergraduate work in pre-law, and he set out to disprove Christianity and to disprove the resurrection, and yet Josh McDowell today is one of the greatest defenders of Christianity. Just like many, many others in human history who have sought to disprove Christianity, they end up demonstrating that Jesus Christ indeed rose bodily from the grave. One way in which uh, people try to disprove the resurrection is to say that somebody just stole the body. But there are only three groups that could have stolen the body. First of all, the Romans. Second, the Jews. Or third, the disciples. There's no one else. But the Romans would have no reason to steal the body since they wanted to keep the peace in Palestine. If the body disappeared, they knew there would be a disruption, and so there would be uh, no reason to steal the body. Their, Their whole goal was to keep the Jews as quiet as possible. The Jews, on the other hand, would not have taken the body because the last thing they would want is a proclamation of the resurrection. In fact, it was the Jews who made sure that there was a troop of Roman guards assigned to the tomb and a seal put on the tomb to guarantee that no one could steal the body. It was virtually impossible. In fact, if if that seal had been broken or those guards had fallen asleep, it was a death penalty for those guards. So it was, uh, there was a Roman guard on the tomb placed there because the Jews wanted to make sure that no one would take the body. And third, the disciples. The disciples had no reason to steal the body. Furthermore, furthermore, if they did steal the body, then why is it that they later, most of them died for the proclamation of the resurrection? You don't die for something you know is a fraud. You might have one person die for something that's a fraud simply because they're psychotic. But you're not going to have the majority of the disciples and many others die for a lie. The only other possible explanation is Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead. It's one of the most attested facts in history. In a court of law, you only need two witnesses to prove that someone did something. And yet, for the resurrection of Christ, you have hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses. He, there are 11 different appearances of Jesus Christ after the resurrection. His first appearance occurred early on Sunday morning to Mary Magdalene. This is recorded in John 20, verses 11 to 17. His second appearance was also early on Sunday morning to the other women. This is recorded in Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56. Later that afternoon, we find his third appearance when he appeared to Peter in Luke 24:34 and 1 Corinthians 15:5. Also that afternoon, he appeared to Cleopas and another disciple as they were leaving Jerusalem to go to uh, to take a, uh, on their way to Emmaus. This is recorded in Luke 24:13 to 35. 
5th, he appeared that Sunday evening in the upper room to the ten disciples. He just walks through the door. This shows he had a physical body, though. This isn't this kind of sort of mystical thing where Jesus rose in the minds of his followers. See, you'll have people who try to communicate that, that, that Jesus died and his resurrection was just just in the minds of his followers. He just lives on in our hearts. That's not what resurrection means. The very word means that someone has died physically. It's not resuscitation. Resuscitation is uh, the, the idea that someone drowned, but there's still a possibility of reviving them. This is not resuscitation. This is resurrection. And the word means that the person was truly dead. He appeared that Sunday evening in the upper room to the ten disciples, John 20, verses 19 to 23. A week later, he appeared to the eleven disciples, including Thomas. This is in John 20, 26 to 31. This is when, Tom, when he says to Thomas, Put your hands in my side, feel the wound, feel the nail prints in my hand. See, there's solid empirical evidence. Jesus rose from the dead. He still had the, the prints, the nail prints, the 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 wound in his side, giving evidence that it was the same body that had now been transformed into a resurrection body. His seventh appearance was to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee while they were fishing. His eighth appearance, he appeared for to 500 people. This is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. In his ninth appearance, he appeared to his family members, such as James, his half-brother, and remember, none of his brothers believed on him until after the resurrection. It was only when they saw the resurrected Jesus that they were convinced of his claims. They were not convinced until they saw him alive. In his tenth appearance, he appeared to the eleven disciples on a mountain in Galilee, Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 to 20. In his eleventh appearance, some forty days after the resurrection, he appeared to his disciples at the ascension in Acts 1, verses 3 through 9. In his resurrection, he still retained the nail prints in his hand and in his feet. He retained the wound in his side. He could eat. He had a material nature, and he could be felt. He could cook. Notice, real men can cook. He had a resurrection body. He could breathe. But he had a resurrection body that could dematerialize. It could pass through doors. It could pass through walls. But it was still material. It was a different kind of body than what we have now. And this resurrection body possessed flesh and bones. So the resurrection of Christ is important because it is the basis for the doctrine of our victory over death. It validates who Jesus Christ was, what he claimed to do on the cross, and was a sign of God's acceptance of that sacrifice. The disciples were scared to death when Jesus was arrested and they fled. But when they saw Jesus Christ in his resurrected body, they had the courage to preach his resurrection for the remainder of their lives, many of whom died a martyr's death because of that conviction. The resurrection is not a myth. The resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. It is the resurrection that tells us that the tomb was empty. Here we have a picture of the empty tomb. 
that the body was gone, the grave clothes lay just as they would have been if there had been a body there. But the body disappeared. It dematerialized and was made completely new from the previous components. These are some pictures of some of the uh, ancient tombs in Jerusalem. And yet in the tomb where they believe Jesus was buried, there is no body. The grave is empty. Here is a diagram of the way the t- a typical tomb would be laid out. You see here that that inside the tomb, the body would have been laid in its grave clothes, and outside this, a huge stone would have been rolled. There was an impression here in the in the rock, which would have kept it uh, down, uh, covering the opening, so that it could not have been rolled out of the way. Furthermore, the Jewish, I mean, the, the Roman soldiers put a seal on that stone so that no one could break it. It was broken actually from the inside as an angel removed it to demonstrate that the body was no longer present, that Jesus had risen from the dead. As the Apostle Paul says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are all fools, for we are all dead in our sins. But Jesus did rise from the dead, and this is why we celebrate Resurrection Day every year, and we ought to celebrate it every day because it is our victory over death. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we know we have eternal salvation. And we know that we will, despite the fact that we may die physically, we will spend eternity in heaven, that someday we will have a new body, a resurrection body, like the body that Christ had, and that we will spend eternity with him, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to come face to face once again with the historical realities of our salvation, that you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross to die as our substitute, that he entered into human history through the miraculous virgin conception and virgin birth, that he was truly human, that he was true humanity united with undiminished deity. When he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. You loved us so much that you sent your Son to die for us. If there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, this is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. You don't need to change your life. You don't need to reform your life. You don't need to make a bargain with God. You don't need to get involved in any kind of ritual or religious activity. The Scripture says all you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, that he, his death is sufficient for your salvation, that nothing else can impress God. The only thing that impressed God was what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and all you need to do is accept that by faith alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we have studied today, that it is the person of Jesus Christ, it is his, his spiritual life in his humanity where he demonstrated the principles of the spiritual life that you, you have given to us, and that by imitating him in terms of his walk by the Spirit, 
being filled by the Spirit, exercising the faith rest drill, his doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, personal sense of eternal destiny, personal love for you, an impersonal love for all mankind, and his perfect happiness, that he has demonstrated for us the skills to advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.